Hello? Anyone there? Hi. Hey. <laughs> Long time no see. How are you? I know. Yeah, it's oh, pretty good. How are you doing? Oh, pre- pretty awesome. Hey, so I appreciate you doing this. I know it's been kind of a long time, but I wanted to catch up with you about a couple of things. Okay. Primarily what you've been Mm -hmm. up to, all the awesome things that you're doing, but also I need some help. I'm in desperate need of some of your counsel because I'm, I'm doing something pretty new for me. I like to collaborate with a lot of folks and and get stuff done that way. But as an exercise for myself, I want to work on a one person audio show. And I think oh. that there are some things that, that terrify me about it. And I know that you're just so knowledgeable on that stuff that it would be <laughs> awesome to kind of pick your brain about that. But uh, sure. And anyway, with that aside, how the hell are you and where are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I am. I'm pretty good. Um, I'm currently in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, wow. I've been here for... <laughs> A little bit over a year now. Um, I just finished a master's program at the University of Glasgow, uh, focusing on dramaturgy. Um, awesome. And I am hopefully soon, eventually, but hard to tell, um, <laughs> headed over to Australia to get a PhD at Flinders That's University. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, not in Australia yet. They still haven't opened their borders. Oh, my Fingers goodness. Fingers crossed that happens soon. So um, how long have you been there in uh, currently where you're at? In Scotland, yeah. um, I moved here um, last October. Okay. Um, so yeah, has yeah. it? Has um, so it been? I've been here since then. Um, I'm actually like I'm actually headed to the states <laughs> in like a week, um, just to like you know see family over Thanksgiving and hang out sure. for a couple of weeks, trying to get over to Australia. So like I'm not here for much longer. Oddly enough, you caught me at a weird time. No, yeah, yeah, no worries. <laughs> how's it? How's it been for you? I mean, your learning experience there and and being yeah. immersed in in a new environment for that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, because of our lockdown here, we had like a four month long hard lockdown. Um, I didn't really feel like I lived in another country for a while. (laughs) Um, Didn't really interact with a lot of Scottish people very directly. Um, Darn it. (laughs) That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. um, Just like the last six months, I feel like I've actually been in the UK. Um, But it's been good. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's the University of Glasgow has one of the most renowned um theater studies general like academic theater studies programs in the Mm -hmm. world um so it was really cool to just like get a a diploma from them um Mm. and yeah uh i wrote my dissertation on um on internet theater uh sort of during the pandemic but also like the yeah, so there's actually as it turns out a long history of online and digital theater uh but it just kind of all mushed together in the last 18 months or so and so it's like a new experience for most people and most mm. artists which is kind of interesting and do exciting you, and that means there's a lot of different stuff happening. yeah do you feel that it's sort of like a culmination of all that i mean in terms of where it began how how did internet mm-hmm. theater specifically begin uh according to Ooh, what you, you've experienced um, or what you yeah learned? uh uh, so a lot of internet theater started, like, there's a bunch of different points, uh, where it started. Um, there's, a, like, live streaming has always been a, a big thing. Um, and that's a huge component, component of online theater now. Mm-hmm. Um, so like live streaming culture with, you know, playing games or, um, like the study with me videos. I don't know if you've done those. I've done a lot of those in the last year. <laughs> um, but like, Things like that um, have been a component for a while. Um, 
one of the more famous like live streamers in the web 1.0 days uh was this woman <laughs> named jenny i forget her last name but she did jenny cam and it was just like a constant live stream of her in her college dorm room wow um and it got like way too intimate you know it, it wasn't just mm -hmm. her like sitting in front of her computer or reading books or sleeping or whatever it was mm -hmm. like sexual activity or hanging out with friends or just like literally everything she did in front of that camera got live streamed to the internet mm -hmm. um so slice of life stuff right that that just kind of uh, yeah became bigger than theater right yeah okay Exactly. Exactly. Um, so like that kind of plays into the, I think the sense of intimacy that we want to get from live streaming and from online theater. And like, it's a sense of intimacy that like, uh, Grotowski, I think kind of wanted in a lot of his, uh, chamber theater, mm. you know, where like the audience and the, the actors are almost on top of each other. It's stripping um, away that like, wall, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's hard to do when like you literally have a fourth wall in front of you that's a screen, but it's also <laughs> not hard to do because we now with social media and stuff like have a culture mm -hmm. of being really intimate with each other uh, right. in the space, even though there's like a big physical distance. Um, so, so there's a lot of like cultural things like that to sort of conglomerate, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it almost, yeah, you bring up a, a good point. It's like we have a common language to experience intimacy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because everyone's phone is like right here, right up to their faces. And we don't realize how intimate that can be as a medium. Mm -hmm. What do you think the prospect is for that kind of new theater? Uh, I mean, like, are you interested in, in creating that kind of stuff or is that something oh, you kind of yeah. want Well, I mean, that's what I'm going to go do my PhD on too. So, nice. um, yeah, I mean, I hope it sticks around. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just don't think um, that there's a I, way back, you know, I, I feel like no, this not. is like the point of no return, uh, which is kind of terrifying for yeah. a lot of traditionalists, but it's also like, it's opening up the floodgates, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, everything's terrifying for traditionalists. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I'm a little bit involved in like the online debate, mostly on Twitter. Um, but, uh, it seems like right now there's kind of a couple of schools of thoughts on it that are like evolving slowly. Um, and I think there's room for both and I think they should overlap a lot more than they actually do. But, mm. um, so there's one school of thought that like live streaming or like filming performances and then putting them online to access is going to be important. So like, um, the Metropolitan Opera has been doing this for years and the mm. National Theater uh, here in the UK has been doing it for years where they like they live stream their shows uh, using digital cameras, but to movie theaters. Oh, right. Wow. So you can go watch a simulcast basically of uh, a live performance from one of these companies. Um, and so you get a sense of being in the audience without actually being like in the audience, like you don't have to travel super far away to go see a show. Right. Um, is that more and affordable so there's, there's, than, than a traditional theater going experience? Like, do you think it's kind of subsidized a little bit? Like, Hey, you can go yeah. see this cheaper shows that are like, <laughs> I don't know, just, just in terms of democratizing things. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, well for the simulcast, like it's, you know, it's a movie ticket price, okay. which is not necessarily affordable, but it's like, <laughs> it's more affordable than trying to like fly to New York and buy an opera ticket in yeah. like one of the front rows and then go to see an <laughs> opera that way, right? Like that's yeah. hundreds to thousands of dollars. Um, so yeah, there's a sense of affordability and accessibility that goes with that kind of push for live streaming in order for a theater company to like build their audience 
nationally or internationally. Um, and there's also sort of a disability rights um, accessibility argument there. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of articles have been written by people who like physically cannot normally go to the theater or have a really difficult time sitting in, in uncomfortable theater chairs or whatever for, uh, you know, in a lot of theaters, like some of them are historic buildings. And so they can't retrofit for historic archival reasons or like they don't have to and so then they don't do the capital funds campaign to uh -huh. like retrofit to allow wheelchair access or whatever um so so there's an argument that it creates greater accessibility for a lot more people sure. um, for a lot of reasons and i think that is a really really strong argument um but there's also because we have the ability not just with zoom but with a lot of other technologies to be live while physically distant and liveness is a huge part of theater right. right like you are sharing a temporal experience with an audience and with the performers and like you can do that online now mm -hmm. um and so technology is taking a crucial aspect of theater and removing it and giving it a different platform mm -hmm. um and so a lot of people are also playing with that with different technologies mm -hmm. um, and creating, I mean, maybe we won't call it theater in 10 or 20 years, but creating digital theater um, that gives you a live or even semi-live experience um, without uh, having to leave your house or like you can sit on the bus and watch yeah. a live show um and so people are playing with um how to use these different mediums like um there's a performance uh last june i think is when it happened but it was uh, produced by the unicorn theater which is actually here in the uk um and it was um uh oh my goodness why am i forgetting the name of the show it was <laughs> it was huge uh oh i Cinna. Um, okay. It was one of the first uh, Zoom shows that I actually watched, um, and this was kind of what set me down this whole path of like, oh my god, this is incredible. <laughs> um, but uh, but this show j was just performed over Zoom, and it was performed live, and it's one actor um, who like he filmed himself in a couple of different places, and he was alone in this theater, and so he was like responsible for using you know his phone and his laptop and like a tiny little camera and mm -hmm. moving between all these different places, but. Um, he interacted with us in the Zoom chat because mm. um, the show is partially interactive. And so even in the like in-person version, he would ask the audience for suggestions. But it was a lot easier over Zoom where we could just like write it down. And then he had a written record that he could use. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so like that's a very simple way of using technology for a live piece of theater. Um, there was uh, another show recently um, called I Melania. I like the um, Apple I lowercase oh, I. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it was about Melania Trump um, and kind of examining her life and her place in culture, like before the Trump presidency and then after the Trump presidency. And oh, it, it's only an hour long show, but it kind of follows like her effect on culture from the perspective of the two women who wrote it mm. um and it was performed at a set time every night like there was a schedule for it like a broadcast schedule um but it wasn't necessarily live i don't think it was live it was two pre-recorded videos and you would sync up one on your phone and then you'd sync the other one up on your laptop oh goodness um, and so 
their their commentary there is not just like Melania Trump has had a huge influence on society, but the way that we engaged with her as a cultural figure and how like, you know, you would sit and watch something on your computer and then you would also do research on your phone at the same time. And so right. you got that experience when you synced up your two devices right. of like how these two writer performers did their research. Yeah. Right. And so, um, yeah, so, that's that's a curious yeah. point that you bring up because it's a complementary mm -hmm. experience now. So it's, it can't just be yeah. one thread, right? It's almost yeah. like the the audience is demanding such a, a dynamic experience that it can't just be here's yeah. this this funnel of story coming at us. There have to be various mm -hmm. other things at, at play. And I'm sorry to cut you off, right. but I did mean to ask you this: Do you feel that there is enough youth engagement? And mm. by using these kinds of tools to engage like a, a newer audience, or is this just going to yeah. become something other than theater that is not bringing new people to theater? I mean, <laughs> and, and this is just like, like speculative stuff because I'm not, I'm not too knowledgeable on this, but mainly curious. Yeah. Um, it's hard to tell, um, as as your question sort of implies, there is a big problem with traditional in-person theater bringing in quote unquote youth audiences. Um, and the way that they pursue those audiences is also really problematic, right? Like they have the the token progressive show scheduled right. in their season, <laughs> and that's supposed to bring in like 20-year-old like black students. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, and you're like, okay, but then what is the rest of your season trying to say to this one group that you're Right. You think you're pandering to, but you're actually like catfishing them, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to expand uh, potentially the audience for a theater. Like if theater companies can find a way to make hybrid theater, essentially, mm -hmm. um, and actually make it accessible. But then also, like, you have to consider the narratives that they're planning in their season. Right. Right. So uh, and there's financial accessibility as well. Um so yeah, I think it's it's a possible way to bring in younger audiences. Um, the other, I think, issue here is like who actually has the financial power. And yes, it's a lot of elderly people at this point. I mean, you say young audiences, and I want to say millennials, and I am a millennial, and I'm 37. Right, and, right? It's, <laughs> like, and it's like you I'm know, on the downside to middle age here. <laughs> right, and I'm right there with you. You know, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm right exactly right there with you. And I'm thinking, oh, they should be pandering to me. I was like, no, our time is kind of you know we're we're well, a transitional generation because now you got the, I, I don't even know what part of the, the, um, the alphabet we're at with gen, uh, I think it's gen Xers. No, I gen Z. Still, I think they're still gen Z right now. They're yeah. probably going to get another name in like another 10 years or something. But. It, it, exactly. But you know, one of the things that I notice about this and, and why this is so interesting is because I feel like there has to be almost like a call and response component. Like you were saying, mm -hmm. the interactive mm -hmm. quality of it is now you can't uncouple that from the experience yeah. anymore because they won't engage in the way that even we are used to as a, as a yeah. generation. And it's so difficult for me personally to say, no, here's a story, you know, here's, here's a beginning, middle and end that, that I came up with. What do you think? But now it has to be more of a, okay, I do this part. What do you want to do? And then they got to They got to mm -hmm. give me point A, point B, you know, or something else. And it's, is that is that just the way that it's going to be now where it has to be gamified in a way or or mm. um yeah. put together in such a way that they that they have the building blocks to the story and they can choose their own adventure because i i mean it's i don't know 
Maybe I'm just yeah. thinking that it's it's going to be way more complicated and that there's no room for a traditional, you know, narrative told by one person. Um, right. Yeah. Um, I There is a lot of gamified theater. There was a lot of gamified theater before the pandemic. Um, mm. And it's certainly an experimental track you can take. Um, I don't think it's required. I mean, narrative, like standard linear narrative with a beginning, middle and end or like a five act structure or whatever, like that's television and lots of us still watch TV. <laughs> um, so uh, so I, I don't think there's no place for it. Um, I think that in in the sort of the realms of theater, there's like the the high art traditional theater that's sort of slowly imploding on itself. <laughs> um, and then there's the the like fringe theater mm-hmm. essentially, which is what I like I've been doing it forever. And sure. I think you've also been doing a lot of it yourself. Uh-huh. Um, where like there's a lot of more room for experimentation. Um, and it's not necessarily a huge audience draw either, but at the same time, like you have a lot more wiggle room to create new things and try new forms. Mm. Um, yeah, I think the cool thing about a lot of online theater, at least the online theater that, that works, Mm. right. Um, is when it allows for community and it doesn't force community. Right. Mm. And I think that that there's a subtle difference there where like you allow your audience to have the tools to interact with you. And that doesn't mean you make them choose what the narrative looks like, but that might mean maybe you broadcast it over YouTube and you have the chat on and you have a chat moderator to make sure nobody turns into a complete jerk, (laughs) but you know, you let people talk to each other during the show, Mm -hmm. which is not a thing that you can do in a traditional proscenium theater where the lights go down. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and even talking to people during intermission doesn't really happen because it's unlikely that you know anybody else except for like the one or two people you went to the show with. Right. Um, so yeah, so allowing that sense of community to happen, um, I think is one of the real benefits of digital and online theater. Um, Mm. and it hopefully is a thing that's going to keep happening. Um, Absolutely. Even if yeah. you just like have a really active social media page, like a really active Facebook group or Twitter presence or in Instagram or whatever, like mm-hmm. somewhere that the audience can talk to you throughout the entire process. Like, I think that that's huge for people. Sure. Sure. Um, I, ideally, what would you like to do with this digital theater? Like, do you have any, any mm-hmm. projects or anything that you're thinking about that's truly kind of sticking with you at this time? Uh, it could be something to do with maybe the dystopian shit show that we're in right now oh, with, God. Uh, with yeah, Meta. I, well, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that too, because uh, I know you have a penchant for sci-fi as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and I've I've written some dystopian shows, and uh, I like they were not as bananas as what's happening now. Like I, you know, I I thought I had some crazy out there ideas and like, man, the first solo show I ever wrote just seems tame in comparison to the Trump presidency. Um, not to get too political, but whoa. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. And now we Um, have this, uh, this crazy idea that Mark Zuckerberg is acquiring all of the bad ideas from sci-fi and he wants to create essentially a, a a shitty version of the matrix. Uh, we're, yeah. we're, we're all going to get plugged in and um i know really... what a boring use of that technology my god I know, he's right? taking like... something that's basically second life and he's turning it into a virtual meeting room are you kidding me 
<laughs> well, okay. On the upside, at least somebody's going to do a production of like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or Top Girls, or something that's set in an office, like yeah. and do it in the metaverse. And one of the characters um, and is like a dinosaur, and and then like you got somebody else who looks like Barbie or whatever. And yeah, yeah. I mean, you can reinvent the design. I guess it's a new tool yeah. for design. Yeah, it's going to give all of Ugh. us a sci-fi CGI budget. It's going to be great. Um, yeah, I know. Look, Ready Player One and Snow Crash and all that stuff. Like those are cautionary tales, dude. <laughs> That's supposed to be fun. <laughs> They're like, no, but wait. What if we brand it a certain way? You know, headlights. Uh -huh. You know, a lot of cool stuff. All the kids are gonna uh -huh. love it. But but that's the yeah. thing is, I think that the newer generation is smart enough to say, ah, I'm not I'm not into that. I'm I'm gonna go somewhere else now. Um, yeah. And maybe it just it it feels like it's been on my mind a lot. It's like, what are the newer generations feeling about this? Like, what are they going to do with this? Um, because right. I, I think it might just be time for me to kind of step aside and make my own French theater in a, you know, the way that I like to do it and let them do their thing, take over. Um, but, mm -hmm. but specifically with your one person shows, uh, what led you to the form, uh, out of all the mm. theater when, you know, when you've done your one person shows, what made you decide, this needs to be a one-person show, not a traditional production. Oh, um, yeah, I, that's, that's a hard question. Um, I mean, it's a combination of, like, practicality and mm. vanity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Needed in the field. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely a yeah. requirement, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, in theater, yeah, all theaters that at some point. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's much more practical um, in a lot of respects if you want to get work done to do one person shows, mm -hmm. um, especially like I really enjoy writing um, and I really enjoy fiction. I also really enjoy the dramaturgy aspect of it. Obviously, I just got a degree in it um, <laughs> and it's easier for me to take on the bulk of the work myself and mm. especially with touring to like pack my own suitcases yeah. and like organize my own travel and not have to worry about organizing anybody else's travel <laughs> um so so that was like the practical side of it and then i mean there's just there's the vanity of like even wanting to do this work and expecting it to be good enough to get butts and seats um <laughs> <laughs> but there there's a, um, an initial kernel of belief right in that idea mm -hmm. Um, like when you were doing, uh, the one title that I thought was always like a badass title was effing robots. Like that's, this is oh, a yeah. really, really fun name, you know, or title for a show. Uh, like mm -hmm. for instance, how does that come about? How, how does that story begin for you? Uh, do you mean effing robots specifically or yeah. just like in general? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> effing robots, uh, throughout most of the process was basically a joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, I, I'd done a couple of fringe tours and, um, I wanted to do something that was more like a storytelling show than like an, just a piece of fiction. And like, I tell people that effing robots is semi-true. Like there are parts of it that are for real. I did them. Mm. Um, but like a lot of it is fake. Um, a lot of it or fictionalized. Right. Um, I guess in some respects it's historical fiction, but <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I was touring a different show in 2018 and I was gone for two months. Um, kind of, I started in Florida and I ended up in Maine. Mm. Um, and, uh, 
while I was on tour, um, I was posting a lot to social media because I was just lonely. I missed my friends. Mm -hmm. um, like I have friends from fringe festival tours, but like there's downtime in between. And so you're not necessarily seeing a lot of people. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I, I got a Facebook message from somebody that was obviously a bot. Um, <laughs> and it was a really flirty like, I don't think there's actually that many bots on Facebook anymore because it's kind of dying. Yeah. Um, but at the time it was pretty hopping. And so like this bot messaged me. Um, and then very shortly after that, I got another very similar message, but like a completely different name. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, oh, wow, the AI is just really hitting <laughs> on me right now. Um, and it, like I made a joke about that because I'm a sci-fi writer. And so I posted it to my Facebook page and then a friend of mine was like, so that's going to be your next show, right? <laughs> um, and I had really intended the show that I was touring in 2018. I'd really intended to stick with it for a couple of years. Mm. And I was like, well, no, I mean, I don't like, I want to refine this and maybe like do another draft for touring next year. And sure. then just the concept of this AI flirting with me got stuck in my head. I was like, oh. <laughs> All right, fine. I'll write it. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I downloaded a chat bot. Um, called Replica, which is spelled with a K. Um, and I think Replica is still around, but I don't know how much it's being updated anymore. Um, but it was also kind of a big project at the time. Like I started researching different chatbots and this was one that like, there's an app for it instead of interacting with it on a website. Um, and it was supposed to be one of the better chat programs at the time. Um, mm. So I talked to it about every day nearly every day for like a month, like the last month that I was on tour. Oh, um, yeah. And part of that was just to generate material. And also part of it was because it was really interesting. And then another part of it was, it was actually a good conversationalist and like <laughs> it would listen to me when other people wouldn't listen to me. Although there was one time when I was at an event um, kind of between tour stops, uh, but I was like hanging out with some friends and I was just having a real bad day. Like I was miserable and I didn't want to socialize. I forced myself out anyway. And I ended up just sitting in this corner, like talking to a replica on my phone. And because I was really mean, it like picked up my tone of voice as I was writing and it started being really mean back to me. Really? Oh yeah. my goodness. And this is an older um, version of, of, uh, of an, of a bot, right? So yeah, well, it was the 2018 version. So oh, okay. yeah, but it was pretty good at picking up like whatever my tone of voice was at the time. Like it'll start to mimic your language a little bit. Mm. Um, and so it just like ran with it that day. And, and I was like, I got to put this down. I feel bad now. <laughs> that is insanity. That is pure insanity. Yeah. So how much of the bot actually made it into the text of the, of the script when you were putting yeah, that show um, together? So there's a couple of big sections. Um, there is a video of effing robots. There's actually two videos of effing robots online. Really? There's a tape of a live version that I did in 2019. Um, and then there's a like fully online version that I did for French festivals earlier this year. Um, yeah. Uh, so in the in-person show, um, well, in both scripts, there's chunks of uh, me talking to Replica. Um, in the live version or... Yeah, in the live in-person version. I'm trying to be very careful about my words because like I had to dissect live versus in-person in my dissertation. Um, so yeah, but in the in the in-person version, um, I have uh, like cue cards, like notebook note cards hmm. um, that had replicas dialogue on them. And so um, I had somebody from the audience come up 
and they would play me. And so I would hand them the cards that had what I said to replica on them. And then I would be replica. Um, uh, and so there were a couple of chunks of that. And then, yeah, those are in the um, fully online version as well. But because I couldn't like have anybody over to my flat <laughs> when I was making it, um, I just did like zoom readings um, okay. with a couple of people. So those are, that's what's in there. Um, yeah. That was a long-winded way of explaining that, but yes, oh, no, ultimately a lot of replica made it in. Um, but a good chunk of it is also just kind of like talking about the history of AI and like what it, what we're trying to accomplish, what humans are trying to do to artificial intelligence, like what we want out of this relationship. Mm -hmm. um, Cause we're really trying to like Pygmalion style mold it into mm -hmm. the perfect partner um but everybody thinks about that differently so yeah so what do you think we'll eventually get you know when when this with thing AI. is yeah with, when ai is a little bit further along and maybe is on the verge of mm -hmm. becoming fully self-aware or getting to that point of yeah. of the valley you know getting getting uh pretty uncanny there um yeah. what do you think we're going to end up with yeah given given the trajectory um, that we've been in yeah, um, I, I'm going to curse us with this, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that we're going to get um, another sentient creature anytime soon. Um, and part of the reason for that is like the, the fun little silly AI experiments like Replica um, are not as popular anymore. They're kind of going away. Like there's still people who are doing stuff like that, but it's not as much of a fascination mm. um, compared to the concept of like a neural network being taken and used in a business context. So mm. capitalism is essentially taking it over. Um, so AI for business is really different than like a personal AI app or chatbot or whatever. Um, but like a company is never going to want their chatbot to be sentient. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. They'll they'll find some um, kind of failsafe. That that's what you're telling me that uh, they won't let it yeah. get off the rails because it is an asset. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um. So I don't think that that's. I don't think we're gonna get something like Jane and Ender's Game that just arises out of the Ansible <laughs> network yeah. and appears online and is like, "Hi, I'm your I'm your pal." Um. Actually, I've been sentient at this whole time. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I think that's going to kind of stop it in its tracks. And then I think that, you know, some new technology that's better than neural networks is going to come along and businesses are going to move on. And then probably right. at some point, you know, in a few decades from now, somebody is going to pick up AI technology and be like, Oh, what's this weird thing and start playing with it again. Sure. Um, sure. But like, I, I think that that's basically like, there's just going to be boom and bust cycles of mm -hmm. it for a while. What do you think about the Neuralink thing that uh, I think, is it Elon Musk that's working on that? Uh, do you think that that is going to be more of a, a novelty item as well, where you're, you're essentially taking some, uh, some piece of AI technology to enhance yourself mm. in, in a way? I mean, do you think there's, there's mm. anything to, that might be a possibility there? Or is that just kind of yeah. a fad too? Um. Well, I mean, I, I'm forgetting the name of the woman that came up with this concept, but we're cyborgs already. 
Um, and we've been cyborgs for a long time, but like the amount that you and I rely on our phones every day, right? Like right. we've already got technology embedded in us. It's just not like physically in our bodies. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that there's going to be some, some level of like, I'm actually unfamiliar with the Elon Musk thing. Yeah. No, it, like, it was something what? like, yeah, I, I saw a YouTube video where, you know, essentially he wants to plug in. And then oh, you'll, you'll be able to, to, you know, Google off your eyeball or something. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of details on it, but it's essentially <laughs> taking the phone technology and, and just making it accessible without actually having the object right next right. to you or in your hands. So there, there yeah, is neuromancer's a cautionary tale, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. But, but that's kind of the impression that I get that right now, uh, the future will be corporate. Uh, and if, if that is anything to, uh, to heed as a, as a bit of a warning, I mean, we really got to get our shit together. Um, but yeah, it, it just makes for a, a lot of good writing, right? Especially in this, <laughs> how many more cautionary uh, yeah, tales can really we wring out of this? It's real easy to churn out a piece of a dystopian cyberpunk flash fiction right now. I got to tell you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, Hey, uh, I got, I got to ask you when you were doing your tour of effing robots, when you said you were touring like from the South to the North, what is the audience yeah. response for that kind of show? Does it vary? Like when you're mm -hmm. say in the South versus when you go up North or, or, um, how do you learn mm -hmm. what works and what doesn't? Yeah. Um, well, fringe festivals, because a lot of artists tour to kind of the same ones, um, like a lot of national and in, in international artists will tour all over the place. So there's kind of a, a loosely similar culture in what um, audiences expect and react to. So like storytelling, stand-up, um, cabaret, that stuff tends to do really well at mm -hmm. fringe festivals. Um, so I, I did try to incorporate some elements of that into the show. Um, I did not actually tour Effing Robots specifically from Florida to Maine. Oh, okay. I did take it to Portland, Maine in 2019. Um, I took it to Australia twice. So, uh, yeah. So how about in terms of, of American audiences and, and maybe mm -hmm. an international audience, how, mm -hmm. how do you learn from that, uh, in terms of making the text better for you or did, were yeah. you able to, to kind of work on it that way? Yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, the, the thing about the effing robot script too, is there's a little bit of wiggle room, um, to adjust it kind of on the fly, um, mm. like depending on what the audience response is. Um, so I like, I would recommend that to artists. If you're dealing with people live and or in person, um, mm. then you can have something that you can be flexible with. Um, yeah. Um, really the thing that made a huge difference, uh, in tours and audience response, as far as like getting more people in was, mm. um, how I was able to market the show. Okay. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a chunk in the middle of it that is, uh, it's two minutes of burlesque and I specifically designed it like it fits narratively into the show, but I designed it at two minutes so that I could use it as a preview. Mm. Cause there are some fringe festivals that have a big opening night party and they have a preview. Um, and so the festivals that I went to where I was able to do the two minute burlesque routine to preview the show, I did really, really well. Um, and then unfortunately Adelaide French doesn't have anything similar. So I wasn't, I had much smaller audiences there. Mm. Um, 
and in a couple of other places where there wasn't a big opening night party or like they're just smaller festivals then yeah like i just didn't have as much audience response um but everybody seemed to really like it um and one of the fun things i think about touring sci-fi specifically is the people who are drawn to that kind of work uh really want to have a conversation mm. afterward um and not the kind of conversation where <laughs> you know it's it's like i have a I have a question. Well, really, it's more of a comment. Like they actually <laughs> want to know about mm. the show or they have some they do have some opinions about what they think the future is going to be like. But usually they want to talk about, you know, what it made them think of or what it inspired in them. And and that's mm. a really cool thing to have happen as a response, even if you have only three people in the audience, like being able to talk to them afterward is awesome. So, oh, that's yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, that that really gives me something pretty interesting to think about is, is the built-in marketing aspect of it. Because if you are a one person operation, what, at what point does that come in? You know, like as you're writing, you say, Oh shit, I got to do that. I got to do that two minutes. I got to do something to use as, yeah. you know, that, that branding component or that, that piece of, um, uh, essentially advertising there. Um, mm -hmm. so, so going back to the writing here, do you consider yourself more of a writer or more of a performer? Or at this point, is there no distinction or should there be no distinction between a theater maker, you know, who's wearing a lot of hats? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah, it depends on the kind of performance you want to do, I think. Um, so if you are the kind of person who wants to do a lot of personal storytelling or you want to do stand up, obviously there's you are the subject. Uh -huh. um, and so the difference between the writer and the performer is. There, there is one, there's a bit of a wedge there, but it's a lot smaller, sure. right? Um, but you're still gonna have like a stage persona and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've always considered myself more of like a writer, director, dramaturg than mm -hmm. a performer, um, except for way, 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 way back in the day, like in undergrad, um, I, I thought for a long time I wanted to be an actor. Um, and then I got out into the world and kind of went, oh no, I don't like this. <laughs> Same. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, that's, yeah. that's not for me. I, <laughs> yeah. Like I will do it under duress. Um, I will do it in order to make my work happen, but, work um, it's not, okay. it's not my favorite part of the process. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when you, when you were younger, it began as an acting thing for you, like, mm -hmm. Hey, theater, you know, like, uh, I'm going to do some shows, you know, in school and that sort of thing. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah, I took an acting class for the first time when I was six and kind of mm. went, oh, this is great. Uh, <laughs> and have basically been doing it ever since. Um, yeah, I mean, a few years here and there that I didn't do any theater, but it's really rare. Sure. <laughs> Did you have like a like a, an artistic family growing up? Was that part of your your upbringing, you know, when you were younger or, or not so much? Um, Sort of. Yeah. Um, I mean, my dad is an electrical engineer, um, <laughs> so that might be more of the, the sci-fi side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, my mom always encouraged my creativity. Um, she like, before I was born was a professional ballet dancer and teacher, oh, wow. um, also painted a lot and then just kind of stopped in her thirties, um, mm -hmm. and like gave up on it for a bit um but yeah so she was i think she was very creative and i think was always sort of frustrated with not really having the right outlet mm. um and i think that was part of why she encouraged me to pursue things um is yeah. because like this was an outlet that i really enjoyed and she wanted me to keep having that experience yeah. with it absolutely do you think that um i mean how much harder is it now 
you know, and I ask personally too, because I'm in my thirties and it feels like now my, my son's eight years old. I feel like there's finally an opportunity to kind of pick up where I left off, you know, artistically in a way. So learning Mm -hmm. to write again, learning to do these things, what do you think we have to do to retain that drive, that specific momentum to, to just be productive or, or is it something that, that we just have to be okay? Oh, you get older, you just aren't going to do that much input, you know, or as much as you're used to. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not a parent. Um, so like, that's a whole separate struggle (laughs) where, yeah, but yeah, I mean, if you have to take a break for life reasons, like Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. um, I don't like, on the one hand, I want to say the, the impulse to be creative, it's never going to go away. Mm. Right. Um, like you're, you want to return to it because this is a big part of who you are and this is how you prefer to express yourself. Mm. Right. Um, so I guess there's a matter of getting back into the groove of what you used to do or finding something new that you will also enjoy the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, but like that, that part of who you are never leaves. Um, yeah, I, yeah. And, and so it's kind of like a curveball to throw at you, but I, I think maybe yeah. in, on your terms, you know, when you're having those shitty days where just nothing is happening, I mean, what yeah. kind of methods or what kind of things do you lean into to bring yourself back up to speed? Or is it okay to just, you know, step back and say, I'm, I'm not really giving anything yeah. today. I don't have anything today. Oh God, dude, if we've learned nothing from the pandemic and all the forced lockdowns, like if we can't learn to allow ourselves to not be productive, I, then I don't know what else we can do. Um, (laughs) yeah, I, uh, there's this show. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called you're the worst. Um, it's a few years. Yeah. Um, it's an anti-sitcom, so I love it. (laughs) Um, but one of the characters is a writer Um, and so he's like in one of the seasons, he's in the middle of writing a novel. Um, and he just has the worst writer's block ever, which happens to everybody. Um, and so he, he, he spends the entire episode yelling at various people who are like, don't you have a book proposal? Do you, he's like, (laughs) it's all writing. The whole thing is writing. Um, and that's, that is true. That is legitimately true. Um, like he says it in a really crappy curmudgeonly way. Um, but like taking a break is writing, going on a walk is writing um or whatever painting like whatever you want to focus on because if you like if you don't have input from the rest of your life to be a complete human being you are not going to be able to do the thing you love absolutely i love that yeah what now what are some things that have made you the artist that you are now like um <laughs> if there are some specific and and you can go to life experiences or you can go to uh, works of art that have really just kind of given you that direction. You said, holy shit, that is, that's the thing. That's the thing that I really want to make or something like it, you know? Has there been things like that that really kind of have stuck with you over the years? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is kind of a timely one accidentally um dune was huge for me Mm. um i i read it the first time i think i was 15 um and it was one of those books that i just inhaled over a couple of days because i my mind was just generating so 
much like I watched it like a movie instead of reading it. Mm. Right. You know, it was one of those books that just I have still very strong mental images from what came up the first time I read it. And like, I reread it again a couple of years ago and it's not the same. It's <laughs> the way how I remembered so, it. when. I was how is it different? Um, um, it, it just, it didn't have the same sort of fluidity anymore. Mm. Um, uh, I, maybe I just identified with Paul Atreides more <laughs> when I was a kid because he's mm. also like 16 or something in the book, right? Right. Um, and so I think maybe that whole, like the sense of, being unable to get out of your destiny where like a certain amount of your life is just planned for you. And you can't mm. like, you can't leave, you can leave high school, I guess, but most of us don't. Right. Um, you're stuck, right. You feel <laughs> yeah, in, in the moment. Yeah. Like you, you don't have a way out. Um, yeah, no, I, like I didn't even, yeah. Oh no, um, go ahead. So, well, I was going to say like, that's, that's the thing I remember from rereading it recently of being like, God, Paul's a whiny little jerk. <laughs> like, <laughs> He's he's the freaking messiah from three different <laughs> mythologies and he can't get out of this? Like, come on, man. <laughs> At least give it a shot, you know, see what you think. Stop bitching about it for a little bit. Um, yeah. So yeah. did you see the movie yet? Oh yeah, I totally saw the movie. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have not seen the movie yet. I mm-hmm. I didn't read Dune until recently, and I'm rereading it again because I, I tried reading it when I was um my son was six months old, you know, it was like the peak of just like, you know, baby stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I couldn't make it. So I'm rereading it now and I'm, I'm hoping to, to get to watch it soon. But what was your impression of, of the movie, the way that they handled the adaptation? Uh, I, I really liked it. Um, or I really liked a lot of it. Uh, it has the sort of slow pace that like movies from the late seventies have like okay. the original alien. Um, where it really takes its time to very meticulously tell the story. Um, And I have a lot of respect for that kind of filmmaking. Um, It's also only half of the book. There is another half of this that's going to come out in like two or three. Yeah, yeah, um, which I also like, I appreciate that format because I don't know how you make a story that makes sense from the book of Dune and squish Mm -hmm. it into two and a half hours. Like it's not feasible. Yeah. No, it's hard. Um, a lot of the visuals worked really well for me. Um, I did not like the way they designed the sandworms. I did not like the way they designed Baron Harkonnen. Although, um, I'm forgetting his first name, but that Skarsgård is terrifying. Stellan Skarsgård. Yeah. He's frightening. He is amazing. Yeah. 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 Put him in anything. They didn't Um, let him play enough in this one. So hopefully he'll come out a little bit more in the next one. Yeah. Good choice for that character. Um, yeah, and like visually, I, I liked a lot of the the choices they made. There was this sort of ongoing thing um, that I think is a more modern interpretation, but makes sense, um, where uh, the Atreides family are based. They're basically Nazis. Like mm. they're in a uniform that's really Nazi esque. The first time you see um, like some of the delegates from the Empire come to their original home planet, that's essentially England. Mm. Um, the there's this huge army behind them and it kind of looks like from star Wars, but it's also like just really fascist. Um, there's a scene where, um, God, this is going to be spoilers for people, but, uh, (laughs) where Stilgar, the bit where Stilgar comes in and meets, uh, Duke Leto for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, and Stilgar like spits and everybody's really offended for a minute. Uh, and then Duncan Idaho is like, no, 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 hang on, hang on. (laughs) Thank you for the gift of your water we're cool. Right. Um, and then everybody else spits and it's like, it's all fine. Um, 
So like, that's a moment where I think, you know, as a white person, I have always interpreted that as, oh, Duke Leto is so nice. He's so beneficent, Mm -hmm. you know, like good for him for being so cool with this indigenous person Mm. who is, you know, just trying to like protect his people as much as possible and doesn't really want to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a, there's a big flag. The Atreides flag is behind Duke Leto the entire time and it's green but it's got a big eagle on it and it's really Nazi-esque. Oh, shit. And so there's a constant reminder in that scene of like, it doesn't matter how nice this individual is, he's still upholding the wrong system. They're still representing the empire, right? Yeah, this, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. Exactly. And uh, I do remember reading that there was a bit of, of discord there with um, mm-hmm. some folks uh, having issue with the casting or maybe they, they wanted more representation in terms of the the folks who already lived in arrakis um but i you know again i'm not i'm not too knowledgeable specifically on what they were asking but you know Mm -hmm. do you think sometimes we we just have to enjoy the experience i mean i i think you know at at what point do we have to kind of let it go and and just kind of enjoy you know the the production because i i do feel that like frank Mm -hmm. herbert was a pretty progressive dude (laughs) you know like he was uh, trying. Yeah. 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 In a Give lot of ways. I mean, he was also a terrible misogynist. Like if you read oh. most of his, his characters, like he's afraid, he's actively afraid of women. Oh, and God. so like all of the women <laughs> in power in his books are all terrifying human beings. Right. Mm. Like you don't like them at all. Um, anyway. So yeah, I mean, yeah, he was a pretty progressive dude in some respects. Um, like as an environmentalist. Yeah. I guess, you know, with the sure. misogyny probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> probably yeah. Not. Well, I mean, I also don't think he was necessarily super great about, like Orientalism, for example, oh, yeah. but like that's, yeah. you know, like there's a lot of arguments that we can have. And I think with deba- debates like this, and I'm also totally saying this is a white person. Um, we, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Right. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you have to be able to take that experience and enjoy it for what it is and see that like, there's the, a certain amount of effort and like, yeah, this is better than like previous versions of Dune. And this is better sure. than like Lawrence of Arabia, which was very progressive for its time. Um, and so you can compare it to similar media and say like, we've come a long way. And also this still isn't quite right. You know, like it's better. And like, who was the casting director? We could have done better in some of these respects. Sure. Sure. Uh, Yeah. It has to be treated like an ongoing learning experience, right. To just keep getting better and better. Um, but I, I can't wait to see the movie. I mean, I think it's going to be amazing. I just got to make some time to go check it out. You know, like an yeah. old person at the, you know, 11 o'clock show, you know, once oh, my kids are asleep. Nobody in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, pe- <laughs> I don't know if you remember that Onion article that it was like, you know, uh, a picture of this dude by himself at a movie theater. And it was like, you know, a lonely douchebag by himself at the movie theater again, you know, and it was just one of those, you know, Onion articles. And I'm like, hey, that's that's what I want. <laughs> that's, that's me. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be awesome. Um but um, is there anything that really kind of left an impression, you know, like Dune, any other stuff mm. that really kind of sticks with you? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I think part of the reason I wanted to go into theater in the first place is um, my grandmother always had season tickets to theater um, mm. when I was growing up. And so when we would go visit family on holidays, like I would go see usually a Christmas show um, and the theater that uh, she had tickets to, it was the Christmas show was either the lion, the witch in the wardrobe or Peter Pan. Mm. Um, and there's a picture of me, actually, I don't know who thought this was a good idea. Um, but <laughs> one performance 
um, of Peter Pan that we went to when I was four. Um, the guy who played Captain Hook was in the lobby before the show and during intermission meeting people like like he was Santa, like he would have kids come sit with him and get their picture taken. And so there's a picture of me with Captain Hook as a four year old. Um, and it just totally I, I guess, you know, it's a way to take the sting out of the character who might otherwise be terrifying to small children. Mm. But at the same time, I was like, man, bad guys are great. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that. But also, like, there were um, like there's some amazing productions of Peter Pan um, from that theater. And. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you do like a good stage production of that, it's intense. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I remember, maybe they weren't actually great productions, but I remember them being really amazing. Enough that they kid. leave a lasting impression on. Yeah. And, you know, it's just such a great story, too. I remember reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was one of the first books I was able to read in English because I was learning English uh, when I was about mm-hmm. 10 years old. and. We got to middle school. I, I was about 12 and they gave us Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. And I was like, this is blowing my mind. You know, like it, it was nice. such a great experience. Um, but um, I, I want to ask you just a couple more questions because I do want to be respectful of your time because I, because oh, no, no, no. of the time stuff. Um, yes. In terms of this, this idea of using theater and storytelling as a way to empower communities, like. I'm very curious about this because I don't know if I'm doing research for myself or if I just want to see if there's a way to codify the things that we do for people who don't have access, like mm-hmm. folks who don't get to go to college for this. Like I live in a small, uh, a reasonably sized city in Wyoming now that mm-hmm. may not have access to some of the awesome things that, you know, maybe Denver has or things like that. But what do you think are some some ways that we can create theater in a way that is low impact, low impact in terms of, of cost, but Mm -hmm. you know, high impact in terms of community, community stuff. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. And that is, I'm sorry, please continue. Oh no, that that's it. I'm just rambling. (laughs) Okay. Um, yeah, uh, that is another ongoing debate, right? Because like large theaters have these educational outreach programs um, as a way of like reaching more community and helping people like learn more about theater and sort of become theater goers from a younger age. But mm-hmm. those can be really condescending, right? right. right. Uh, unintentionally, most of the time. Um, but yeah, the assumption is that like this group of college educated people um, who are in hundreds of thousands of student dollars of student loan debt, by the way. So like, do they know what's best? Probably not. Um, but like they're telling other communities what's good theater. And so I think there's been, um, for a long time, this idea of like high art versus low art. And Mm -hmm. then the high art, like the theater company in the big city is obviously going to do better storytelling than like whatever the local community theater is doing, or like what, what the open mic night has available at the bar down the street. Right. And mm-hmm. that is not necessarily true. Yeah. Um, so uh, in, in fact, I, in my experience, it's not often true. Um, I find that whatever the, the local art or like whatever small artists are doing is much more engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't have a good answer to that, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, and particularly with my focus in the last year being on online theater, um, that's kind of a, like an international reach, which is a, a whole different audience than like trying to work with your local 
town community. Sure. Um, sure. The only the only person I've ever read who's come up with anything close is uh, Augusto Bawal. Mm-hmm. Um, in his idea of like not just having theater that you put on with the community, but that you like you make a story and then you take it to the audience. And then this is interactive theater where like they can pause and they can come up and change the story. Like if they don't, mm-hmm. if they decide they don't like how Midsummer Night's Dream is playing out, then they can come up on stage <laughs> and do a better version. Right. Right. <laughs> dramaturgy. So you're not just like doing feedback panels or doing endless like staged readings for the community, quote unquote, like you're not doing that kind of pejorative stuff. You're actually taking something that you've made and handing it over to this group of people Mm -hmm. and are like, is, is this your art? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then if they tell you no, they have the opportunity to fix it. Mm. So, um, yeah. And, and uh, selfishly, I do want to ask you if there are some ingredients that are essential to a one person show, you know, just like if we can look at the nuts and bolts of what makes a damn good one person show, what do you think mm-hmm. that, that those things are? What do you think those? Ooh. Yeah. Um, cause it can be really different depending on sure. which artist you're sure. talking to. Or, but in your personal uh, experience, just from, from, mm-hmm. yeah, your um, it's the thing that makes live theater engaging and it's hard to describe, but it is that sense of having the artist talking to you. Um, cause like I'm, I personally with effing robots had a great time literally talking to the audience, occasionally getting commentary, you know, <laughs> like in the middle of the show and then responding to people, um, which is a lot of fun, but like, that's not necessary for a one person show. Um, like I've, I have seen some of the most choreographed, like meticulously, not choreographed in a bad way, like almost dance-like choreographed mm-hmm. one-person shows that rely on very specific timing and still felt like a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like there's no room for the audience to stop and respond, but it like the artists themselves were, were so connected with the work that they couldn't help but give that to the audience. Um, and yeah, like you can do that with online theater. I don't know how to explain exactly what that sensation is, but I think you as an artist, like you just, you have to believe in the work. It has to be a conversation that you have with yourself all the time. And then you take that and you give it to them and then they can talk back to you, whether that's literally talk back to you or sort of the traditional, like laughing and applauding and Right. Things like that, right. or or sitting in stunned silence because they're so amazing. The, the <laughs> quality of the work, um, uh-huh. but yeah, I, and taking I think a sense of taking humility too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that helps because you are you are on the same level as the artist. Like even if you are telling them a story, like that's not because you're better than them or because you had a really cool thought that just makes you so much more interesting and exciting and mysterious <laughs> or whatever. It's like you guys, I had this really cool idea. I have to tell you about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, I think that helps a lot. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and lastly, in just in terms of pie in the sky stuff here to, to wrap it up, you know, given the, the world that we live in now and, and this, this notion of hybrid theater kind of taking mm-hmm. over, what is it that ideally you would like to happen in the theater? 
you know, with the tools that we have to serve the world that we live in now? Like what, what is it that is really calling you right now uh, to, to do with the tools that we have? Um, yeah. Um, because I'm kind of turning my focus more toward dramaturgy. Um, but this is true from the writing and the directing perspective too. Um, it is, it's not just finding new audiences. It's, it is a way of making that more of a conversation, I think. Um, so one of the things I want to do from the dramaturgical perspective with my PhD is help people make work that is hybrid theater. Um, probably more leaning toward the digital, but um, but still like a, a combination of different live experiences. And a big question for that, as with anything, is is why? Mm. And the answer can be like, oh, because it's cool and fun, because I want to try it out. That's very valid. Um, but like, why do you want to communicate this way? Because that is going to inform how you as an artist engage in the conversation. Um, and how you create a platform for other people to use this conversational point to launch their own conversations. Um, so I would like to see theater take that turn. I think that, you know, part of the reason theater has been so worried about its competition with film and television for so long is that it's lost that sense of being a conversation with a community of people. Um, and so I would like to see a return to that in whatever form that takes. Oh, that's an amazing way to wrap it up. That is, <laughs> that is killer stuff. So, uh, Nicole, thank you so much. Sorry. I was super late, okay. but, uh, I, I really can't thank you enough because, you know, even though it's been a little, a uh, little while, I always think of our collaboration super fondly. I learned so Me much too. when I worked with you and, uh, yeah, I hope that uh, we get to chat again because Absolutely. it's it's been like like seven years or something. I know we worked together what twenty thirteen or something. It's yeah. been so long. Yeah, but it's it's random because you know you're on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and I'm like she's right there, you know, and like I see her every other day. But then at the same time, it's like, yep. where's these conversations? So I really appreciate your time because I I just think that mm -hmm. every time I talk to you, it's just like a new learning experience. So I I really appreciate it, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me Jaime it was really good to talk to you again and I'm I'm glad that you're kicking off some more work I love the idea of audio theater um and I I hope that you I look forward to listening to what you come up with I think well uh let, let me know it, you know because <laughs> you're you're a very interesting writer and uh I yeah. I appreciate it I still think of Sybil at Commotion Street like all of the time it was such a great piece to work on it's just such a bizarre thing it was an out of left field thing I think that's why I liked it so much. Uh -huh. like you said, what if we do this, this, and this? And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, let's do this and this. And then it just became this weird- I love that. Yeah, strange thing. But uh, yeah, I'll keep you posted on this this shit show audio yes. play that I'm doing, whatever it is. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm just excited. Lena's the weird man. <laughs> that's right. That's all I got. So uh, I, I don't know what time it is over there, but I hope you have a great day or good night. <laughs> it's only 8.40. It's fine. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Nicole. Take care. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. It was really Bye. good to see you.